Hello and welcome back to the show, Bim. It was actually your birthday this month. But it has, was. Has February been a, a month of celebration for you? Has it been a positive one? Uh, as positive as it ever is in British politics. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, moderately. I'm now the grand old age of 36. So, yeah. I mean, do you enjoy the, the ageing process? Do you feel like you're getting no. more learned with no. the years? No. <laughs> I mean, Actually, you, you must still be considered quite young, though, because you have been made the youth uh, minister. Uh, well, I, the I have. I've been chair. made vice Conservative Party vice chair for youth, but I must I must be honest and say that one of the previous vice chairs for youth was appointed at the age of forty eight. So um, <laughs> let's not be. Yeah. I am still considered vaguely young. I suppose that's true. Oh well, there you go. Let, let's move it on to possibly one of the biggest discussions of this month of February. Um, it seems like we've truly entered a post-COVID stage Thank as all the goodness. COVID restrictions have been removed. I mean, the big question that a lot of people have is, why was the decision taken now, Bim? Because we were far overdue. The boost campaigns worked. The vaccine rollout worked initially. The boost campaign worked. All the naysayers who said, oh, you know, we need a lockdown over Christmas. Oh, no, we need a lockdown. Yeah. Lockdown, they just seem to love lockdown. And they, they, seem to, they just seem to ache for more lockdowns and more controls. And the government was right before Christmas in putting in Plan B that was a moderate set of measures, very moderate. And I remember people saying, oh, you know, it's not enough. I'm making the same mistakes, all the rest of it. And guess what? The judgment call was correct. By the way, against the advice of a lot of the, the medical experts who were predicting, and I think these guys haven't been pulled up enough on this, the sage best case scenario saw, I think, over 450 deaths per day if we did the plan B measures. And we never got anything like to that number. And that was their best case scenario. That was the best potential scenario. And, and hospitalisations were you know, similar proportions. And you just got to think, I'm not saying they don't try very hard and work very hard. They have, and, and they did. But it's important that we recognise our own humility in the face of what this sort of virus, and also recognise that your core judgment call, that when you have a virus, over time it mutates to become more transmissible but less lethal. And that is exactly what happened with the Omicron variant. It will happen with future variants, uh, at least under COVID-19. Of course, you can end up with a whole other disease, and that's a completely different scenario. Um, so I just think that the government's call was right there, and um, I think we're right now. Some people have been critical of the move, though. Let, let's go through some of these criticisms. The first one was people calling this a political rather than scientific move by Prime Minister Boris Johnson to appease party members during a time of serious pressure. What would you say to these comments, Bim? Well, it's not true. Uh, it's only true insofar as everything a Prime Minister does at any time is always political because you're a Prime Minister and it's a parliamentary system and you need to retain the confidence of Parliament. So that is always a factor in every single decision of any kind that a Prime Minister makes. But it was based fundamentally in, in the judgment of the government and the cabinet that we've got to move forward, we've got to move on, and we can't, we've got to learn to live with this virus, and that's what we've done. So I think the judgment is completely correct. Uh, also, some have been critical of the removal of free testing. Why was this measure uh, taken? Two main reasons. The first 
is it is not saying there will be no free testing for anybody at any point. So there'll be certain people who are, for example, in hospitals working who will um, get free testing. However, it's important people appreciate that free testing was costing northwards of five billion pounds a month. So once you're in those sorts of numbers, to give people a sense, the national insurance increase going through in April raises about 13 billion pounds a year. This uh, free test was costing, you know, several billion pounds a month at its peak. So, you, you know, you've got to do a cost-benefit analysis on these things and think, is it sensible when we have got to the point where, you know, the virus really is not lethal for other than a very, very tiny minority of people that we continue spending billions of pounds a month on free tests? I don't think it is. And I think that that judgment, um, there's always a, a call as to when you exercise that judgment, whether it be now, in a week, in a month, or in two months. But at some point, you've got to, you've got to do that. We've decided now. Uh, and I think that, that that's as good as any. Do you think as well that with the free testing measures, people don't understand the full extent of where the money has been going? Because a lot of people have been saying 39 billion has been spent on an app and a lot of criticism of Dido Harding and and all those situations there. Do you think that there has also been uh, a misrepresentation of where actually the, the efforts have been going from the government and the spending? Yeah, I mean, I think that what people haven't realised or rather have forgotten is the extent to which at the acute phase of this crisis, we just have to throw the kitchen sink at everything. Tests, PPE, test and trace, I mean, just everything. And in hindsight, some of that money will look in inverted commas wasted, but that's not what it was. It was to deal with an emergency. Um, and it costs a lot of money, but that was what the government needs to do because we were faced with an unprecedented crisis. The final question then, uh, again, some political commentators have questioned... They're always wrong, but yeah. <laughs> um, it's good to discuss these points though, Bim, because uh, again, as I said, there has been criticism. Um, it's now been left up to the British public's own discretion to make their decision. Um, and the PM has said that he hopes that Britons will follow suit and the example of Germany, that they are much more disciplined about not going to work if they're sick. But some have said, will the government follow suit and copy the German model by offering 100% of people's pay when they are calling off sick? Well, I think anybody listening to that question will very quickly work out the danger with doing that. Uh, so I don't think that's a very sensible thing to do, but sick pay is something that we should always look at, statutory sick pay. A lot of this, by the way, will happen in the markets anyway, because individuals will, individual businesses and business owners may choose different policies for, for different people, depending whether they can work from home or not, et cetera. Uh, but I don't think it's up to government to mandate 100% pay if somebody decides to call in sick. No, I think that, that presents all sorts of unforeseen and foreseen dangers. Let's move on then to uh, discussions about party chair Oliver Dowden. Uh, the Conservative Party... He's a great man, who I know very well. Well, this question um, is about comments that he has made to certain groups. Uh, the party, the Conservatives, have always kind of spoken about their 
commitment to protecting free speech. But earlier this month, party chair Oliver Dowden gave a speech to the Heritage Foundation. He said that the West should not be obsessing over pronouns, seeking to decolonize maths, or in a speech denouncing the painful woke psychodrama. As mentioned, the Heritage Foundation there, they support climate change denial, attacks LGBTQ rights, bans on free speech, and also they were one of the groups peddling the right-wing extremist lies of voter fraud in the USA. Uh, One of your fellow MPs, not of your party, obviously, but Nadia Whitmore has said Oliver Dowden has some cheek to claim it's the left trying to divide society and limit people's freedom. Do you disagree with your party chair with wading into a legitimate free speech discussions, especially with the Heritage Foundation and their history? Well, the Heritage Foundation is a mainstream conservative think tank in the United States, so uh, I I don't agree with them. with criticisms about them. But even if I did, by the way, which I don't, it's perfectly legitimate to to make a speech there. They're a perfectly legal and legitimate place for a party, conservative party chairman to make a speech. Now, look, I, I reject this pretty strongly. On Nadia Whitton, um, you know, I think that even Jeremy Corbyn would regard her as a bit, a bit left-wing occasionally. Um, and so she can be uh, uh, on the left of her party, of which she is perfectly you know, able to do, and that's legitimate in a democracy. We need to have all shades and and everything, but but uh, she is very much on the far left of the Labour Party. In relation to the question about this woke psychodrama, I feel that Oliver is completely right. And let me explain why and how. What we, the West, and we're seeing this militarily in the Ukraine with Russia, but more broadly, is turning in on itself. The West, in my view, has forgotten the things that made it successful and great over the last two to three hundred years. We have decided that all the things we have that have been built through hard work, through commitment to democracy, free speech, shared values, to striving for excellence and meritocracy, we've forgotten that those are the things that made us what we are. And what we've decided to do or rather what a lot of people have decided to do, not a majority yet, is to try and apologize for everything that has happened. Apologize for what we have. We've decided to say that the stain of empire means that um, white people, uh, and I speak as a non-white person, uh, white people almost born with this um, Uh, original sin of whiteness that is inherently racist. They're in societies that are inherently evil and racist and oppressive. uh, And therefore, they need to spend all their time apologizing for who they are. And I'm afraid when you take that approach, beyond it being historically um, illiterate and, and wrong, it means that you forget the things that made you what you are and successful. And you give an opportunity to people, in my view, who are much worse than the West, and by all means, this isn't saying that we've done everything right, but you give an opportunity for people in countries like China, or indeed in Russia and other parts of the world, who have a profoundly negative view of the potential of human nature in comparison to the Western liberal model, to say, these guys are finished, these guys have no faith in themselves, and I'm afraid that that is why there's, in fact, I've done some reading about there's a member of the Chinese Politburo called Wang Huning, 
who um, is sort of their, their in-house think, thinker. And he has done a lot of thinking uh, and writing and has recently been reported as, as, as saying, you know, thinks the West is finished because the West has no, no belief in any of its former ideals. You know, the death of organized religion is part of it. We've now decided to have a new religion, which some people call woke, um, other people may call, you know, political correctness or whatever. And I'm afraid this is just the road to decline. And, and so I think that Oliver is completely right in pointing this out. What I think we need to do as conservatives um, is we need to develop and articulate a strategy for dealing with it. It's no good people like me or Oliver just complaining about it. We've really got to try and deal with it. Deal with legitimate concerns people may have of things that happened in the past, but not allow that to damage the fundamental truth that we have been incredibly successful societies, an engine of human and social progress over the last 200 years. Uh, and we should never forget. In terms of it, though, the, the reason why I ask this question is, do you believe that this uh, words like psychodrama, does that overplay the situation? Because the reality is that, as you said, Nadia Whitmore is on the far left of the Labour Party and they are moving to the right under Keir Starmer in terms of American politics, in terms of British politics, right wing parties like yourself, the, the Conservative or, or centre-right, uh, the Republican Party have been in power. Over the last 10 years, we haven't seen a resurgence of left-wing politics or woke politics, as some people like to call it. Is this overplayed when generally the electorate are not sharing these views and it's a very vocal minority? I think that is a fair point and indeed a mild criticism that, that I, may, I, I think I agree with. Uh, it's important not to think that everybody believes in all this stuff, because I don't think most people do. And I'm afraid if most people did, then I think then Jeremy Corbyn would be prime minister and the Labour Party would have been more successful in the last few years, and they haven't been. Uh, and people keep electing Conservatives. So, so a big part of the reason for that, I think, is that a majority of your typical British public, members of the British public who are pretty sensible, look at this and just say, you know, a lot of this is bonkers, whether it be tearing down statues, whether it be insisting that people who are men or women put their pronouns at the end of emails and all this sort of nonsense. Uh, I think most people look at this and think it's, it's mad, and I think they're right too. Uh, and I think that the people on the left who push this stuff should look at themselves and say, why is it that we keep losing elections? I think one of the reasons why they keep losing elections, beyond um, not having any sort of real policies on the bread and butter daily issues and the economy and health and all the rest of it, is because they're the people that, that enable this sort of uh, nonsensical um, social stuff. So uh, I think they need to look as well and think maybe, maybe most people don't agree with that. Let's move it from uh, discussions about the woke to uh, talking about actual government policies. And this month in Conservative Home, you wrote that you supported the plans around helping people with energy bills through rebates that will amount to about £350 for most households. You said that you reluctantly supported this as you do not believe in tax rises. And this was a, a way for the government to intervene, uh, not to intervene with the free market, whilst also being fiscally 
responsible. Uh, adding to this, you explained your belief that a VAT tax cut would actually be a benefit to the wealthiest and biggest spending households. However, again, some people have been critical of these plans, stating that the government is already intervening in the free market with tax breaks and subsidi- uh, subsidies for fossil fuel companies, which benefit some of the most wealthy companies in the world, and that these benefits could be cut in order to make a fairer, more fiscally responsible way to help homes across the country. Why were these uh, you know, benefits to these companies not considered to be cut, BIM? I mean, when people say this stuff, it's just not true. So it's really weird. They say, oh, you're giving tax breaks to fossil fuel companies. If what they mean by that is that there's some sort of special law that if you're a fossil fuel company, you get a special tax break. I'm sorry, I've got news for you. It's not true. It, the only the only way in which this is even remotely true is that we do not exclude companies on the basis of what they do, as long as it's legal activity, to get access to the tax rules that apply to everybody else. And that, I think, is entirely fair enough, because guess what? We need oil and gas, uh, and we're going to need it for 50, probably more years, regardless of how well we do on decarbonisation. So that's the first point. Um, I think that when people say the government's intervening in the market, of course government intervene in markets because governments set the rules, but the aim is that we should intervene in markets as little as possible. And when you do intervene, make sure that you have a level playing field on which that intervention occurs. If you distort a market by picking one type of business above another type of business, you get into trouble. That is why what we need to be moving towards is more carbon price caps going on across the world because of price uh, mechanisms. So you, by putting a carbon price that feeds through everything, you incentivize people to use less carbon because you're paying extra for every bit of carbon you use. But that shouldn't apply to one thing or another thing. It should just be for carbon full stop. And if you do that, that is a market sensitive way of dealing with this. It is, so, so that's the way we should really be thinking about things. And the people that just keep repeating, oh, you're giving tax breaks for people. It's just nonsense. And I just do wish that when these people do say this sort of thing, and if any of your people, if politicians you interview ever say this, the question you should ask them is, tell me about a tax break. Tell me how it works. Because I guarantee you they won't be able to do it. Well, I, I did some of the research myself. Uh, and, and again, you can correct the record here, Bim, because, uh, you know, I, I like to be corrected if I'm incorrect in my research. But Britain currently supports fossil fuel companies to amount of about 10 billion a year, according to latest figures from the OECD. Um, so would you say that's incorrect? Because it also explains that 265 million subsidies actually go to renewable energies. Um, I, mean, I mean, could you explain how that is not the, the correct understanding? But again, but this, I'm afraid this is what I'm talking about, right? So, of course, there are, for example, if you have a tax break for a certain type of business activity that at the moment may happen to be used by all the fossil, all the big oil companies, right, whose profits are, I don't know, 20 billion pounds a year, then it will look like you are deliberately subsidizing fossil fuel companies, but you are not. You're not having a list of companies that says these guys can use this tax break or not. Those figures simply reflect the people that use a certain type of thing. But that is not done in order to benefit them to the exclusion of other people. In relation to renewable energy, 
That is different. Renewable energy, we have actively said that there is a, a green levy that, by the way, is about 8% of your energy bill. It's about 8%. Um, that uh, directly, and it goes on the bill, that money directly goes to help support more renewable energy. That is clear, that is transparent, and we've done that. That is a direct subsidy to renewable energy generation, not wind as opposed to solar or nuclear or whatever, but to generally us doing that. Now, that is an area where we have very honestly said we are going to subsidize the generation of this because when we started doing this several years ago, it was too expensive to do renewable energy. And so we had to subsidize it. As time has gone on, wind and solar are now cheaper than oil and gas. So actually, we don't need that subsidy anymore in the same way. Uh, though we, there may be other things need to help subsidize in the future. So the intervention all comes on the renewable energy side. It does not go on the other side. Let's continue to almost correct the record now because there was actually a personal matter for you this month bim where a private eye article has discussed your outside income as an mp could you explain the problems you had with this article well i mean there's a reason why private eye is the most sued media organization in the country possibly the world because a lot of what they come up with is just completely skyless and untrue uh, i made a speech that um, you know, is all public on Hansard, uh, which is about financial services, as I talk about in the house a lot. Uh, and I used, in the course of that speech, um, where I talked about all sorts of things, uh, I used the word apprenticeships once. When I say once, I mean once. Uh, and um, because I used the word apprenticeships once, uh, in a speech, by the way, of a couple of thousand words, um, Privatise somehow alleged that I should have declared that because I happen to be on the board of an apprenticeships business. Now, I'm afraid that is not the rule. It's not the rule that you have to declare something if you use the word. Um, the rule is you have to declare something if what you are saying may be interpreted as to further the interests of a particular private interest or indeed of a constituency interest you may be, for example. Uh, and that was not the case of using the word once in the context of lots of other things. Let's move it from uh, a negative there to a positive, because as we discussed at the start of the show, this month you moved from your role as PPS to Secretary of State for Digital Culture, Media and Sport, and now you are Vice Chairman for Youth. What does this role change mean for you, Bim? Um, it means I've got real responsibilities. So um, <laughs> my responsibilities are for the Young Conservatives and for working closely with the party chairman on a range of different things, campaigning across the country, uh, speaking on behalf of the party in lots of fora, uh, but in particular, as I say, with responsibility for the young Conservatives. So, so that's really what it means. When you took up this role, you've, you've already said that you're going to set out plans to engage young people in po politics. Plus, previously with me and in, in other articles, you've talked about your worry if the government is doing enough for young people. What's maybe one of your first priorities to be able to appeal to younger people in the electorate, Bim? Well, I think that the first thing you've got to do is to listen and actually say, what is it that younger people, and I say young people, I'm talking people really in their 20s, or indeed younger. What is it they want to see change about how things operate? Um, some of these things are policy things, but frankly, a lot of it is more 
strategic, it's conceptual, it's about a framework that operates, for example, do they want us to see a tax system that rewards work more? I think we need to see lower taxes for younger people when you've got people who've been to university, who are paying back university debt with a marginal tax rate in their 20s of double somebody earning the same amount in their 60s. Now, for me, that doesn't seem quite right. And so that is the sort of thing where I think young people may need to, we, we need to listen to young people about you know, what they believe about that. Alternatively, you may have people talking about you know, the management of international affairs. Is it that people want us to be, you know, young people want us to, get, to, be, to be closer with, I don't know, parts of you know, the United States and Australia? Or do they want us to focus more on, on building relationships with Europe? Or do you see what I mean? So really, it's about listening to young people and what do they want? Because uh, though I'm, as I announced, out of myself as being 36, <laughs> I do think, though, of course, anyone can look you up now online. So, you know, there are no secrets when you're in politics. Um, I, it's amazing how even people 10 years younger than, than me, you know, their experience of the world is quite radically different, actually, and so it's really important that people like me go and listen to what they want. And the Conservative Party's got to support people in their aspirations. That's what a sensible Conservative Party does. And um, let's see if I can help do that. On a local issue then, you visited Garden House Hospice Care. I did. Were you impressed with the work there? And, and how can people actually help this hospice as well? Can they donate somewhere or get involved? Donate. Donate Garden House Hospice Care. Go and find them online. They are free. If you need their support, it is going to be free. So the first thing is to donate because they can only be free if people donate. And secondly, if you do have spare time, even a few hours a week, do offer your services. That's what. That's how they can help. There you go. So people do check out uh, the, the company. We will put it in the link. Moving it to Thames Water Treatment, you actually made a trip to East Hyde to look at that. And due to the visit, you've actually called for St Albans uh, City and District Council to not give planning permission to any new large de uh, developments without explicit provision made for water treatment. Do you believe that this is something that needs to be factored in with every new development going forward? Uh, is this a regulation that you'll be working on or, or is this just specific to your constituency? No, it should be the case everywhere. Uh, and the reason why it should be the case everywhere, and it's really important that people understand this, and I didn't understand it uh, until I visited. Where you get problems with sewage going into rivers is where effectively the treatment works become completely overwhelmed. The treatment works become overwhelmed when they can't handle the amount that comes through. And that is much more likely if you have lots of houses being built, approved by the council, which do not have appropriate facilities built with those houses. And it is more likely when people put wet wipes down the loo or down the sink. Because what wet wipes do is they clog up the whole system that makes it harder and slower for that sequence sewage works treatment to, to operate. And that means that if it gets overflown, you get a lot of storms, that's when you can occasionally get sewage overflowing to rivers. So, so it's really, really, really important that, um, that we do those two things, or not do, rather, the, the second thing.
Now, we did actually speak earlier in the month about this. You said you were looking forward to the meeting, uh, the rural crime meeting in Lille. Um, what were did the I main points? Looking forward to it? I, yes, I, I did look forward and I've now <laughs> passed it. Yeah. <laughs> um, what were the main points to give to listeners who couldn't go? Um, the thousands of listeners who wanted to attend who couldn't go. Um, <laughs> basically, if you don't report crimes, there's not a lot anyone can do anything about them. I know that sounds like a very basic point, but quite often people will say, well, what did you do about this thing? Because I was there with the police and it was local police. And I said, okay, so what did you do about this thing that was going on over there? And they said, oh, where was it? And they said, it was on this road. They say, did you report it? The answer was no. It's like, well, what do you expect us to do? So that's the first thing is report. Secondly, take advice. Say, you know, there are lots of channels in every village, in every part of the constituency to get in touch with the PCSO, the local police officers, get in touch with me or the local councillors, and to actually really explain what's going on. Because I found the police very receptive but they do get pulled in lots of different directions. And until we report things and, and, are, and are very clear about what's happening, it's harder for them. So, but at the same time, I've said the police very strongly, they need to be a lot more receptive to people when they do come out, because the reason why people stop reporting things is that they don't think anything's gonna happen, either because of the bad experience themselves or a bad experience that a neighbor or friend has had. So it does go both ways. Uh, so that is useful information there. and. I guess one of the, the pressing matters in terms of maybe local issues as well has been storm unis. It brought damage to the area and Hertfordshire County Council said its highways team received uh, messages of over 175 reports of fallen trees. I mean, how affected has your area been, BIM, and how can constituents get help if they have been affected? Um, it has been affected, but um, particularly my rural villages uh, and I know lots of people that have been affected. Um, what I'd urge people to do is if there's a problem with their home, get in touch with their insurance company, uh, if they can get through. And the second thing is to get in touch with your county councillors, if there is something, and your district councillors, but in particular your county councillors, uh, because often the problems will be highways related if they're not to do with your home. Uh, and that's county council. So that's what I'd urge people to do. Let's move it to the community questions. The first one is from Dason Canning. He said, uh, you've been heard saying international travel boosts business and underpins the UK economy. Um, more than that, however, it brings people together. He's then asked... I've been heard saying, where did I say this? I have no idea. I don't know. Dason Canning has sent this message maybe, in. So. Maybe I've said it in the House of Commons, which is, which as Churchill said, is the easiest way to keep a secret, say it on the floor of the House of Commons. No, um, okay, yeah, I said that, all right. This is the difficulty of politics is you, um, is, is so many of your public utterances are then recorded. And of course, you just, you make so many speeches and things, you can often not even remember when you said something. But that sounds like me, I think. It does. Okay, well, right. that's good then. I mean, the, the question following up it is kind of related to it anyway and uh i think it's it's a fair one he says why then have you called in luton council's plans for a modest five percent expansion one million passengers a year while doing nothing to protect the country's aviation sector um 
I mean, what what is your feelings on that one, Bim? Dason has written a really long uh, email. I mean, I can forward it on to you if you want to answer. Absolutely. I'm very, very happy to do that. And I'm very happy to talk to him. But what I would say in general terms is Luton Airport, bearing in mind how close we are to Stansted, to Heathrow, um, is not the right place for a huge expansion. They have consistently consistently fail to meet their own targets to do with noise and local air pollution. So why they seem to think that they need another million passengers when all that the vast majority of my constituents will see is downside from that is completely beyond me. You may have been in a different world if they had kept to their promises around air pollution, kept to their promises around noise for local people, but they haven't. So it's very difficult to, to say, well, you know, I haven't kept any of my promises. Can I have some more? It's like, well, no, you've got to keep the promises first. And then we'll talk about more afterwards. That's why I opposed it. And for what it's worth, I'm opposing the that they want to double, almost double the capacity of Newton Airport uh, as part of a wider planning application they're doing at the moment. And I oppose that very strongly for some of the same, but also some other reasons. I think it's fair as well, uh, Bim, for you to maybe answer the other bit of the question. He's he's charged the Conservative government with doing nothing to protect the country's aviation sector. I mean, what would you say to that part of the question as well? Um, I think it is a very fair point that the aviation sector was not the top priority when we were going through the COVID pandemic. And... I think that's a fair point. I think that the, the decision was made to prioritise public health first, then other areas of social life and the economy ahead of aviation. And I think that was a fair decision because it was made in the context of aviation being a contributing factor to the spread of COVID because you're moving people from one part of the world to another part. I think that going forward now, we need to make sure that the sector has all the support it needs in particular to move towards, it's becoming greener and support it needs to get greener with you know, low carbon fuels and, and, and low carbon, indeed no carbon flying and that sort of thing. So I think that that's what we need to focus on. And we also need to make sure that they, you know, people can, can that's part of the reason why we open up the economy so that people can go on holiday and do the things that they wanna do. It's also worth saying that what the government didn't do was slap more taxes on flying, which some people were calling for, actually. And the government refused to do that, bearing in mind how much money that would have generated, because I think the government recognised that you put more taxes on flying, that that was going to have a negative impact on the aviation sector. So that's how, I, um, how I'd sum up the approach so far. George has moved it on to uh, a potential upcoming regulation. He says, in regards to the online safety bill, if the legislation does not inhibit free expression, as the government claims, why are carve-outs for journalists and politicians necessary at all? Um, I think we'll just see what when the when the bill is published. I think it's a lot easier to talk about this when it's when it's published. Move it to Annette's question then. And she says, our local Barclays Bank in Harpenden seems to be likely to be leaving soon, like many of our other banks. Do you believe the banks need to be kept open in local areas, especially for older individuals who may not be tech savvy and to reduce the threat of fraud? So 
there is a man called Derek French who lives in Harpenden, who's a great man in many ways, but particularly because he has been doing a huge amount of work nationally on keeping access to banks for local people in local communities. I name him because I lean on him very strongly uh, for the work he does. Uh, and I think it's worth giving him a shout out for that. I've been, you know, I'm in constant conversation with Derek, you know, on and off. And I think it's fair to say that he agrees with me that we do not need any more a situation when you've got all the high street banks in Harpenden or anywhere else uh, available and open, because we live in an area where the online participation for banking is so high, one of the nation's highest. However, we always need to maintain banking, in-person banking services in a town like Harpenden. And that's why I strongly support the development of a shared banking hub so that all the banks can come together and effectively provide a space, physical space, we can go and pay checks, we can go and open accounts and all the other things that you may or, may, or maybe send large sums of money that you want to do in person if you choose to. And I think that that's what I've been working on because I think that it is important that we retain that ability for a town the size of half a million. Uh, Tina has moved it on to the ongoing party gate discussion she said the met police said the questionnaires filled out for the party gate inquiry are equivalent to an interview under caution she asked why does boris johnson get the rules changed for him whereas every other citizen would be interviewed under caution like anyone else uh it's my understanding this is not about the prime minister everybody who has been involved in this has been sent questionnaires so it's not particular to him in terms of it, then, do you, do you think it's fair for everybody in that situation, just carrying on what Tina's discussion point is there, that special rules have been made for this situation? Well, I think if it was an analogous scenario, but it's, but it's, but it's not typical, because typically you would be investigating something much closer to the time it occurred um, for summary offences. So I think that that's really the reason why they've done it in this way. Josie has moved it on to, uh, I guess, the Conservatives' ever-expanding interest in nuclear power. She says the government have been doing a lot for it, which is, I think is often a wrongly criticised form of power generation. Would you support the construction of a nuclear power plant, small or large, in Hertfordshire? So my view is that I'm very in favour of nuclear power. I'm very strongly on the record of saying that, and I've said it, I'm sure, on this programme before. Um, as to where you put a nuclear power station, the key thing about nuclear power stations is you need two things in particular, is you need access to a lot of water and you need a huge amount of space because they can be quite big. And the problem is in Hertfordshire, we don't really have a lot of either of those two things. So I don't think that Hertfordshire will be the right place to put it there. No. Uh, what about one of those Rolls-Royce mini reactors. I guess that's what she means with the small ones. Uh, is so that, it's that weird. So, so everybody's talking about these Rolls-Royce mini reactors. There are two things that people need to appreciate. The first is they have not been put in place anywhere. We see them on submarines, but putting that on land is just a different thing, and they're working at how to do that. So that's the first point. The second point is they're designed not just to be a sort of mini nuclear reactor that you just put on its own. 
it's designed to be modular i can be built up almost like lego bricks if you think of it like that so you, you you put lots together and so it's not that you're just doing small ones it's that you can build a lot of nuclear capacity quickly because you're effectively putting lots of small bricks of nuclear power if you think of it like that together so therefore the point i made first still applies you need a lot of space and you need a lot of water Let's move it to the final question from Callum. He said, yesterday saw the opening of the King's Pantry Food Bank, which is a collaboration between the Salvation Army and the Bethany Community Church in Harpenden. He asked, are you happy to see the community coming together to help one another, or does it sadden you that this is necessary in your constituency? Well, I think that in life, there will always be people who sometimes through their own actions, sometimes through no fault of their own, fall into a real tough place. The government provides unemployment benefit and, and, and other benefits to help people. But also I think there's a very important job role for the community or family and friends. And food banks are part of that process and part of that support network. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with somebody who needs to get back on their feet going to a food bank. I don't think there's anything wrong with them existing because I think it's always important to provide that sort of safety net for when people fall into really tough point. And for people to say, oh, it's sad that they're necessary. Well, you will never, there is no society in the world where you don't have vocal people. It doesn't exist. There's no society where that exists and I suspect never will exist. So the question simply is then, how is the best way of supporting people if they fall into that situation? I think food banks are good aware as any because it's the community helping to come together to, to supplement what support the state provides. I think that that is a, a reasonable way of doing things. And for people who don't like it, I'd say, well, do they either wish that you had a sort of government-run food service that was doing what a food bank did, but doing it from managing it from Whitehall doesn't strike me as necessarily better? Or would you prefer that we just didn't, the community didn't come together and provide that sort of support. I mean, you know, I remember being a child and seeing, and when it came to harvest every year, those harvest services, you go to the local church and people provide food to, to people who, who are needy in the harvest, um, in the route to harvest. And I think a lot of people at primary school age, you know, would be very familiar with, with this sort of thing. Is that wrong? It's, it's, it's broadly the same concept. So no, I, 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 I mean, nobody welcomes people who, who need support but but that's just part of living in a society well there you go for everybody who sent in questions thank you very much for supporting the show as usual bim will be back again next month to answer your questions so you can email them in but as always bim thank you so much for your time no problem thank you